Hello, and welcome to another episode of Broadening the Narrative. This is a podcast where I talk to people who are broadening the narrative I was taught. The music for today's episode is Confessions by Bandy. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. My pronouns are she and her. I identify most with the Enneagram 3, and I'm so glad you're here. Embodiment, autonomy, and agency are necessary to having pleasurable and consensual sexual experiences Mm. and other kinds of consensual experiences, whether we're talking about relationships or friendships or whatever. But also that embodiment, autonomy, and agency are where much of the harmful teaching lies in purity culture. Uh, You can't detach yourself from your sexuality and be embodied. You can't have a mutually consensual sexual encounter without everyone feeling that they have the full right and ability to be enthusiastic about what they want and don't and what feels good and doesn't. Mm. And this is where agency and autonomy really come in. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I am joined by Megan Wooding, author of the book Dear Sister. We'll be discussing the church, purity culture, and sex. I met Megan through Instagram, and I have continuously been encouraged by her through our interactions online and even getting to connect on Zoom a couple of times. Megan, thank you for coming on to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, to get started here, could you share a little about yourself and your background for listeners? Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Megan Wooding. Like Nikki mentioned, uh, I'm the author of Dear Sister, which is a book of affirmation for women, particularly women who are trying to sort out their identity coming from an evangelical Christian framework. Um, I grew up very conservative um, and mostly Baptist churches that my family went to, but I was also homeschooled. And because we lived in a very rural area and just the choices, some of the choices that my family made, uh, I tell people that I was like little house on the prairie homeschooled because of, you know, the prairie dresses and no TV and um, (laughs) no popular music, uh, very isolated. Hmm. So, so yeah, so that's kind of where I came from. Um, it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I really started sorting out how that upbringing really affected me and even had some frank conversations with my mom about some of the choices that they made, which has been interesting uh, as we have kind of formed our adult relationship. Yeah. How has that been? Has she been receptive to your conversations? No, she actually, to my mom's credit, uh, she has always prioritized relationship with her kids over her own comfort. Uh, And that's not something that I can say for all parents of like, even my friends who are in similar situations. Right. uh, So that has really kind of provided a container and a starting point for us. Um, I didn't grow up with any understanding of like personal boundaries or autonomy or anything like that. So I really had to kind of learn that myself and then bring that to the container and be like, okay, well, these things are important to me and this is why, and this is why it might've been helpful to incorporate in, you know, my upbringing. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's really good to hear that she prioritizes your relationship even over her own comfort. Yeah, that is very rare um, and quite a gift in a mom. So yeah, I mentioned that you're the author of the book, Dear Sister. You talked about that. So I wanted to ask you why you wrote Dear Sister and who you had in mind when you wrote. Sure. So I I wrote Dear Sister because I have found the keys to unlocking my ability to claim wholeness in places that I feel it could very easily be overlooked, especially by those from similar backgrounds. 
because you're taught, um, like you talk about in your podcast and broadening the narrative, you're, we, we both started with very narrow narratives. And sometimes it can be very challenging, scary, um, unsettling to look outside of those spaces, especially yeah. if you don't have a bridge. So I wanted to kind of create that bridge for people. Um, it also came honestly about out of a social awakening because I realized that a large percentage of the blocks that we are facing in social discourse have really not much to do with the topic at hand, but more to do with our collective emotional hygiene, our projections, our biases, our trauma, and what we feel our worthiness is tied to. Hmm. Uh, it's incredibly difficult to have hard conversations about the needs of society, community, or church without connecting those dots first. Yeah. So there's this idea, especially in many Christian communities, that we don't need self-awareness or personal development because we have Jesus. But mm. um, I know you can't see me, but I did the little like, you know, hand pump thing there. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> in reality, Jesus is there in part to guide us as we unpack our trauma and baggage. So I tried in Dear Sister, um, I tried to make it a very like easy entry point for folks who may be kind of wading into these ideas for the first time and also a tool of affirmation and inquiry for those already doing the work. So one of the most transformative things I've come to believe in is the power of women coming together and healing. So this book is both addressed to women and also encourages and examines the blocks we often face to developing deep and supportive female relationships. Uh, I also addressed it to women because being a woman has deeply impacted my personal experience. And that's the experience I believe I speak to the best. Uh, mm -hmm. For the record, I think that men struggle with the same demons and different manifestations, but women are my people and I am here for them first. Yes. And I know I've told you this before, but I loved Dear Sister. I loved the reflection questions embedded into the chapters. And it was very helpful for me. But going back to even the part you said about, we have Jesus. I was thinking about how often that has been used. And I even had believed that to keep people from having medication or mm -hmm. going to therapy. And in one of the episodes from season one with Denissa Young, who is a relational artist and uh, performance, like video performance artist, she talked about how she believes therapy and medications are gifts from God to take ownership of our own mental health journeys. So that is quite different from that narrative I was taught about those things when it's like, yeah, you have Jesus. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I know this is maybe off of what our original plan was a little bit, but um, my family actually has um, a history of depression both on both sides. Uh, my dad's mom and my mom's mom were both hospitalized for depressive episodes uh, during their lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And my mom has experienced depression. My sister has experienced depression. And so my mom watched my grandmother go through her challenges and with the very minimal mental health care that was available to her at that point in time, because we're talking, you know, I oh mean, I'm really bad at math, but we're talking a while ago. We're talking about like a couple of generations ago of mental health care, of what was available. Yeah. And to my mom, the we only need Jesus narrative was helpful because to her, it gave her another option from the very limited choices that she saw available, whereas the mental health care field has like taken off in the last generation. So mm. coming up behind her, I felt like, well, you're not getting care for your mental health challenges and um, 
what kind of relationship might we have had if you were able to be more present and you had more help? So mm -hmm. that's been an interesting kind of journey to go on. Um, and, you know, there's still so much stigma around mental health care and medication, particularly, especially in religious circles. Yeah, that's actually a conversation that I have with a lot of my friends, right? Like our parents and they were doing the best they could with what they had. So now we can push that forward for the next generation, whether that's our own kids or kids that we interact with, sort of building on that because we have more things available to us. And yeah, it just makes me think about a quote that I remember seeing that talked about, can we just heal these traumas and these cycles so that the next generation is doing better. And so that's what I see with your book, right? A tool, a resource to try to help heal some of those generational traumas and cycles. But I was curious, what was the most difficult subject to write about in Dear Sister? Yeah, so there were a few things that were challenging, but the hardest topics for me to write about were the ones that really were like furthest from my own personal experiences. So there's a chapter called Kingdom, Kingdom Focus, which in short is about keeping a global kingdom mindset and an inclusive kingdom mindset versus a nationalistic, um, nationalistic mindset. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to write, but it was all, I also felt that it was absolutely necessary to discuss how antithetical to Christian ethos many of our social and political ideologies are, particularly the ones that support uh, systems of white supremacy and colonization. Yeah. So that was, it was a thing of like, on the one hand, it didn't necessarily feel like 100% my space to write, to write to, mm -hmm. like it's, it's not my topic, but then also it's necessary to bring into the conversation. So I worked to do that in a way and bring in voices. Um, I interviewed a few other people for the book as well. So I, you know, worked to bring in other voices for that chapter particularly and make sure that it was uh, something that it wasn't just me putting eyes on before I put it into the world. Yeah. Um, I also had kind of the age-old issue of not wanting to trash people in the book, but, you know, still be very honest about the outcomes of their actions and beliefs. So for example, I talk about my experience of sexual harassment, and I've always kind of worried that people who know me well might be able to figure out who it was, and that's not really something that I've wanted to, like, um, amplify. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know some writers live by the adage that if people want to be well represented in writing, they should behave well, but um, I care about my relationships, even the ones that have histories of trauma, and my, my family relationships being honestly the ones that I probably am the most delicate with, mm. how I represent. Um, others, a little bit less so. Yeah. And then I also worked very hard to encourage inquiry without stepping on like tr trigger topics that would turn people off. So like, for example, uh, people might say that, oh, you know, she has a progressive view on this topic, so I'm not listening anymore. So um, like I talk a lot about like sexual shame and patriarchal oppression that's packaged as purity culture. And this is the book where we examine how that is harmful and, and a terrible fruit in faith and examine maybe implications of where that came from in our, and how it has presented in our lives. Not the book where I talk about how I personally think masturbation, especially for women, can be a really powerful tool of self-love, self-soothing, and a way to claim pleasure, which I feel like might make some readers <laughs> kind of like pearl clutch a little bit. So. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's hard when you're learning all of this stuff in a very like, um, holistic way to be like oh and I want to talk about this and I want to talk about that so like 
being authentic without while well, staying in the lane of the book, I guess, was probably a challenge. Mm. Um, and the last thing was that my experience is steeped in Christian faith and I still identify as Christian, but I think the topics that I delve into apply to folks of all different religious backgrounds, both because of the unholy marriage of Christianity and colonization and because the problems the church has are the problems everyone has. Mm. So I didn't want to assume that my reader was a Christian, which I see in a lot of Christian books I read. And it's not a bad, um, it's not a bad stance to have. It's just not what I wanted for my book. Yeah. So I avoided Christian lingo as much as I could. And I worked to acknowledge that Christian faith and practices are not the only ones or the assumed ones. So this book isn't an altar call or an expectation of anyone to adopt my faith or beliefs. And I wanted that to be really clear. Uh, that makes it kind of hard to quantify though, because like there's a lot of church talk, but I also don't necessarily be like, Hey, it's a Christian book. So mm. Um, I also decided early on not to gender God in the book, which can be challenging from a writing craft perspective. Yeah, I remember us talking about that on one of our Zoom calls before, and I was saying about not gendering God results in a lot of, and God, the Lord, and God. <laughs> so, I like the divine. The divine, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, on October 19th last year, you posted about the church and sex. And when I saw your post, I was like, OMG, I want to talk to Megan on season two about <laughs> this. Like, yeah. So I was so nervous to ask you. And then you said yes, which I still can't get over the excitement of. But your post served as the basis for the questions I want to ask in this next section with some of the questions coming directly from your post. The first question I want to ask you is what is purity culture? Sure. So the term purity culture comes uh, from kind of a couple places. It comes from the religious movements that started with True Love Waits, which is a largely ineffective initiative to promote abstinence among teens. And um, Josh Harris's book that came out around the same time called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, where 20-something single kid shares his vast life experience mm -hmm. on romance and waiting until marriage to even kiss. So Josh Harris was in many ways kind of the poster boy for purity culture. And side note, I kind of feel bad for him because mm -hmm. there was no one in his life at 20-something to be like, hey, there are some problems with your ideology. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, sexual purity was really touted, particularly for women and girls, and it was a marker of worth as a woman, which is really unhealthy. And then this was all underscored by the conservative evangelical political voting bloc kind of mobilizing around that time and really pushing to elect leadership nationally that promised to promote abstinence-only sex education in schools. Mm. So... I personally call purity culture the version, uh, the Christian version of rape culture, uh, particularly to explain it to those who grew up outside of a religious paradigm, uh, but are familiar with secular terms because it operates out of the same ideologies, has the same outcomes, and is equally based in suppression of the inviolence against women. So mm -hmm. purity culture basically just takes run-of-the-mill sexual shame and oppression of women and tells us it's God's will with some Bible verses plucked out of context for good measure. 
Um, purity culture is based in lack of trust. Evangelical Christianity preaches individual relationship with God until a flashpoint comes up and then they want to take back the reins. Hmm. So to be clear here, I know people who have made the choice to remain abstinent because that's what they want. And that's fantastic. Um, I think as long as it's their choice and they don't feel shamed or pressured into it, that's amazing. Uh, The problem is, um, and what becomes manipulative and controlling is teaching teens that even as grown adults, their choice is absence or divine judgment and sometimes shunning if they are found out. And there have been, I know, I personally know of churches that have like made examples of teens and adults who are single that they found out were large air quotes living in sin, you know? Yeah. I think there are probably many people who, yeah, that's either their own story or they know people who've experienced that. Well, looking at your life personally, how did this purity culture impact your life? Sure. So I talk about this a lot in the book, and it's really an ideology that permeates every aspect of your life if you grow up in it. So it can be kind of hard to pull the strings, but I first really see it popping up when I hit puberty. Uh, I had this really strong cognitive dissonance of wanting to be grown up and independent, but not wanting so many of the things people told me came with being a woman, uh, particularly a Christian woman. So in Dear Sister, when I say that purity culture teaches sexual disassociation, this is kind of what I'm talking about. Um, To be seen as a good, worthy, holy, and pure woman, um, I was taught to disconnect sexually and trust that when we got married someday, Um, I'd be able to flip a switch and magically access sexual power and pleasure. Um, And that's just, I never really fully bought into that, but that was really the narrative that was Mm. taught. And something that I think we often miss is that the organization of Christian religion really doesn't ever need women to flip that switch. Um, We've often talked about how it doesn't happen, how it doesn't work that way, how we're sold a bill of goods about it, but we don't really necessarily go back and be like, hmm, the role that is outlined for us actually never needs us to be in touch with ourselves. Mm. So embodied and powerful women who claim their pleasure and gifts are harder to control and we make more waves. So in the beauty myth, Naomi Wolf talks about how the feminine ideal in society is purposely unattainable because when women are constantly feel unsafe, hungry, and exhausted, we are unable to understand our true power and we are unable to demand equity. I see a very similar dynamic in the church. Uh, Purity culture does its job by disconnecting women from an integral part of who we are and then giving us a very shallow container to pour all of ourselves into. Um, And I personally haven't yet found a church that asks me to show up with my full integrated self. Mm. Even the ones who are full of the most lovely people who I love. Um, Purity culture grooms women to fill a specific role in a religious organizations and society. It's convenient that role aligns with the one Naomi Wolf references in the beauty myth, which she terms the Iron Maiden. Um, And it's really all just misogyny. So the expectations of Christian womanhood made me hate being a girl and a woman from a very early age. And I often wonder how my life would have been different if I learned self-love and self-trust when I was 10 instead of self-loathing. I never totally bought into purity culture. I've always been investigative and wary when things don't add up. Uh, However, there really weren't positive alternatives offered. So I kind of had to forge my own path, often without a lot of guidance. Sometimes it went okay, sometimes it didn't. 
as a teen and 20 something, I was fine with the idea of, you know, doing things on my own and being a rebel. But now that I kind of have more information, I see how it could have been really helpful to have that like mentoring voice earlier in life. Yeah, for sure. And even going back to, you talked about uh, that this purity culture is rape culture in the Christian church and all those things you just unpacked. What strikes me is that when we say these things and we know what we're talking about (laughs) or people who, well, I shouldn't say, I know what I'm talking about. I know what I've learned and (laughs) what I've come to know from the experts and what I feel in my body. And so, yeah, like I do know what I'm talking about when it comes to my body, but we try to bring these things to the attention of particularly men who lead churches and we experience gaslighting. Well, yeah, because the system benefits them. And I'm not trying to be like particularly cynical, but in reality, you know, the, the system is working for them. The system, yeah. the system is working fine for them. Now, I would say that's not true across the board because um, there are ways in which it is, it is very harmful to men. I personally think um, having one dimensional relationships with women is actually really harmful to men yep. um, <laughs> among other things, but it's hard for them to, I think, really see and practice empathy for a narrative so different from what their experience is. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we see across the board in um, so many um, marginalized communities and communities that are far experience far greater marginalization than you know white white women in evangelical churches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just I remember trying to have a conversation with a former pastor and telling him how the beliefs that I had gotten taught to me and in my premarital counseling from him and his wife what it had done in our marriage like for me and Stephen mm-hmm. and literally being told well it might not have worked for you but it's working fine for me and okay so here's here's something too that pisses me off in all of the situations where this comes up because it comes up in political discussions too well it works fine for these people yeah or you know this person was able to air quotes, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, mm. but, but why do we always focus on the one person that it works for to justify the system that is obviously not working for so many other people? Come on. Like, shouldn't we be investigating the people that it's not working for because there's a problem there and not just being mm. like, well, it worked for two people. So we're good. Right. Yeah. And over and over again, I feel like what happens because of that gaslighting, right? It becomes that this person is just dissatisfied with God's good design, which you mentioned, right? And we'll talk about that more, like these ideas being packaged as the ideal from God. And so then there's all this gaslighting that happens and all this questioning and this, in this topic and, and in many others. And I think too, there's this objectification inherent in the purity culture as women are and girls are reduced to our bodies and what we wear and all those things. And my friend Jordan, who edits the podcast, I just remember him saying like, when we don't have meaningful and like you were saying, like multidimensional relationships with women, right. Then we objectify them. And then we're going to, like he said, men fill that hole in some unhealthy way, you know? And I just thought that was a really good insight to say, yeah, it's harmful for men too. (laughs) 
Um, 100%. And it's also something that um, the the male role that is handed out, and again, like I said in, at, at the beginning, um, <laughs> I focus on women because that's my experience and that's who I have energy for most of the time in my life. But yeah. um, the, the male role is also very narrow. Yeah. And there is you know, just as much uh, shame available to them if they step outside it. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, for us, Stephen was told, like, I was really insecure when we started dating and then in our counseling and just thought like, he's going to leave me. He's going to fall in love with someone else. And the advice given was for Stephen to just not talk to other women. And so for basically the entirety of my church experience at that church, it was a handful of men who looked me in the eye and talked to me and treated me like a human being. So they're suffering because they aren't having healthy relationships with women. Women are suffering, like everyone's suffering. But I was wondering if you could speak more about the role women are, you said, groomed to fill in religious organizations and society and what that grooming looks like. So um, the beauty myth is really Naomi Wolf's um, explanation of a deep dive into that topic. So she has this she has this what she calls basically like the beauty ideal that we would say we would call like you know the beauty expectation the unrealistic beauty expectation she calls the iron maiden and she calls it the iron maiden because it's unattainable and it's torturous basically um so it the it she goes through history and she talks about how um women really hold a large percentage of the global and well particularly national but even global economy because they do so much household purchasing and she talked about how the expectations of women shifted in you know during first wave feminism when women started going to work and how that really this this um these beauty expectations were coming up um, and being created by advertising executives as the uh, economic sector was reeling, trying to figure out how to market to women now because they're mm -hmm. in this new role, how to capture their, their um, income now. And so really the whole, <laughs> from, from then until now, um, it's, it's about money, it's about power. And it's about um, keeping women distracted enough not to realize their uh, power and influence. Okay. I think the church is very similar, and I don't think it's necessarily as um, intentional um, in the church, but there's some really, like, some of, some of like, the, the early popes wrote some, like, really repressive stuff about sexuality and women, and there was just, like, a deep misogyny yeah. from the very beginning of Christian writing, mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's embedded, uh, and the role that women were expected to play in the church also um, very, very specifically mirrors the role that they are expected to play in society. So the other thing that I found really interesting, there's this book that Chris gave me for Christmas, um, and I will get you the exact name and author of it so that you can link it later, but it's about yeah. the, the desert mothers of the Christian faith, which are like the first, kind of the first nuns, but it was really before Catholicism, but talking about 
that like lifestyle that was chosen when you know Christian Christianity and Rome kind of came together there was a group of people who kind of decided that they were going to do things differently and not um, not partake in the social uh, the social like bonus bonuses is the only word that I can think of but um, the things that came with you know Christianity now being a popular mm. thing instead of something that could get you killed mm. and one of the things that was mentioned in the book was that women had a lot of power in the church before Rome took over and I found that really interesting they said yeah. that Christianity was somewhere that women could go and express their spiritual um, leadership, really, a yeah. place where they could be leaders in their spaces because it was for these people on the margins. Yep. And when it became something that Rome owned, Rome was very patriarchal. Mm -hmm. So gradually that became something that um, was just completely colonized. Yeah. Even that book I've mentioned before, Paul and Gender by Cynthia yes. Long Westfall. Man, it was so interesting to read this whole narrative that we are missing because of the lens we have reading the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And she explains that these women are running the churches, right? Mm -hmm. And they're doing all this work and yeah, we're flourishing and all oh. the people on the margins, but it makes me think, okay, so I mentioned this in our Instagram live earlier today, yeah. but that book, they were her property white mm -hmm. women as slave owners in the American South by Stephanie Jones Rogers, I believe. And that book, I heard about it through historian Letty Shoemate. And she talked about how in our society and in our churches, we teach that women are meek and humble and they're meant to be quiet and submissive and all these things. I read this whole book. Um, they were her property and it is disturbing to see how white women even would take their own husbands to court over their own property. Like they were not afraid to assert their dominance over enslaved people and the ones that were their slaves and they were gifted these people and courts would rule in the favor of these women. So it made me think that just like with other oppressed, like, ethnic or racial minorities in this country, how we leave out these stories and this narrative to disempower them, right? Mm -hmm. It makes me think, you know, this is something I was talking through with Stephen. I was like, man, we've taken this whole narrative about women. Cause when you read about who the quote masters were enslavers, you think like these white men, but the amount of white women who held enslaved people as their own property and, and operated this power over them to strip that away from the narrative, like makes women think they've always been in like white women. Oh, I have to be submissive. I have to be this and that. Like I've always been this way, but I was like, man, can you imagine the power that can come from knowing we've had a voice, we misused it and we could tap into <laughs> our voices and tear the whole system down or be part of helping tear the whole system down. Yeah, hundred percent. If we, and there's, there's two things that, oh, go ahead. No, no, that, that was basically the gist of it. Is that we, we've <laughs> so, misused our voices. So yes, there, there's um, two things that makes me think of. So I mentioned earlier the book, Ain't I a Woman by Bell Hooks, where she really uh, delves into how white feminism has sold black women short. 
Right. And um, she talks about very similarly how white women were slave owners and not only that, but often held uh, the slave, like slave women responsible for um, their own rapes and yeah. mm. uh, assault and abuse by their husbands. So they were getting doubly um doubly traumatized and it was just it's 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 hard to read but I think that it's necessary for us to be aware especially those of us really like working in any kind of um working towards equity in any any way because if we're not aware then we're still operating out of these same patterns honestly right yeah and the second thing, I just remembered there were two things. Um, the second thing is that I think I think women play a very similar role in patriarchy. Yeah. So the women who choose to ally with patriarchy or purity culture, because a lot of times it's not men. A lot of times, you know, the people leading these um, these teen groups or whatever, where you're told how long your skirt is allowed to be, and you know that men can unzip your sweater with their minds if you wear a zipper. Literal mm-hmm. things that I've heard come out of yep. these things. They're taught by women. They're not taught, yep. like men aren't coming in and teaching these things. They're taught by older women. Right. So it's, it's passed down through the generations and it's not, it's not just women are, women and men are both like perpetuating it and also the victims of it. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I know it went way off of script here, but (laughs) we're we're like long, (laughs) (laughs) but no, I mean, I think that's so important to shed light on. And I brought this up in the Instagram live earlier, but in that group that I was a part of with bloody shoemate, Maisha Hill and Weez, how they talked about white women aligning themselves with white supremacy because it Mm -hmm. gives them that dominance over anyone who isn't quote white at the expense of their own female liberation. So thank you for going here with that and talking about that. But within purity culture, right, why is modesty such a huge component within purity culture? So um, modesty is one of the main physical applications of purity culture ideology. And it's a huge component because it's a main tool of control. Hmm. Modesty is the patriarchal infrastructure that tells women we have the ability to control and are responsible for the thoughts, urges, and desires of men while not being allowed to act on any of our own thoughts, urges, or desires. So it's also one of the outwardly enforceable ways those in power remind women of their place in the hierarchy. So it's really, it's, it's like the infrastructure of, you know, the system of if you're, you know, how terrible of a person you are, or you aren't. Mm. Yeah, which goes back to you saying like women leading these things and the things you heard. I was going to say it's it's been so recent. Like last summer, I started wearing tank tops again after probably a decade. Wow. And one of my friends said something like, I don't think I've ever seen this much of your skin. Like, just like because she the whole time she's known me, 
I haven't worn tank tops. Right. Um, yeah. and so she was just like, I don't think I've ever seen this much of your skin, but breaking free from this idea of my bra strap, right. That oh, anyone yes. could see that what a, and that my stumbling blocks are, you know, Oh, like all those things. Uh, yeah, very damaging, but within that, right. About modesty, how did those modesty teachings impact how you viewed yourself, Megan, and your body as well as other women and their bodies? Yeah. So, um, like, kind of like you were saying, the women in my family were only skirts and dresses when I was little, which is really kind of ironic because when I met like people and men and even like my husband from like outside of the bubble, mm-hmm like skirts and dresses are not like particularly more modest than pants. If anything, they're like easier to get into or under. So like, (laughs) I don't know where the skirt and dress thing came from other than the fact that it's harder to do things in them and it impedes your movement. So um, I was always active and had no problem ripping them to shreds when I was like 10 climbing trees and exploring, but they were always like a reminder that being a girl was more important than and got in the way of everything I wanted to do in my life. Mm-hmm. So in Beauty Sick, uh, Renee England talks about this idea of body monitoring, which is the mental energy and awareness that you have constantly of how you look or how you are perceived by others or how you're sitting or if they, you know, if your legs are crossed or if someone can see up your dress or all of those things, right? So mm-hmm. modesty really taught me body monitoring. And then conversely, part of me really wanted to be attractive because I wanted to be desirable, right? And purity culture and modesty taught me that I was owed some kind of like magical sexual siren power over men, which really never materialized. So even once I had kind of like kicked all of this to the curb, wishful thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) When I did get married and I, at certain points in my marriage, had experienced a higher sex drive than my partner, uh, it was really hard to rectify. It felt, it was deeply (laughs) painful to feel like something was wrong with me as a woman because I wasn't able to like elicit this response. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. With the body monitoring, that's definitely something I monitored my own body, but also the bodies of other women around me, very judgy and regret so many conversations that I had with women trying to get them to buy into what I had bought into about modesty and yeah, really policing their bodies and what they were wearing. Um, and then I, yeah, the same for me having a, you know, higher desire and, um, all these things within my relationship and felt like, yeah, something's wrong with me because this doesn't fit in that box of what I was taught about all these things. Um, but why would, yeah. And I think this is also going back to like how purity culture is bad for men, you know, on the flip side of it, there, you know, there are men that are caring and wonderful and just have, you know, aren't like the man that is typified in purity culture that they're taught about. So sometimes there's, you know, wonderful things that you learn when you get married or, or you meet someone that just defies all of the stereotypes, but then there's other things where you're like, okay, so what do I even do with this? Because mm. I was not given any information on how to handle this situation. Yeah. Yeah. No. 
That's so true. Yeah, because there was that one book. I don't even remember what it was called, but I remember Stephen reading it. It was like one of those man books, you know, about like going out in the wild. Wild at heart. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> John John Eldridge. Is that yes. the name? Okay. And he was just like, yeah, this isn't me. So, yeah. We already, you, you already hit on this, um, but I want to dive into it a little bit more. Why is it particularly damaging that churches package up these harmful ideas you've shared about pleasure, about our bodies, about sexuality, and then claim their ideas are God's? Well, I kind of feel like it's heretical. I mean, we talk (laughs) personally, Mm -hmm. um, but it's really because they're taught, like these things are then taught as a path to holiness, to wholeness, to happiness, and none of that's true. It's all a lie. So Mm. um, it's one thing if a friend or parent disagrees with your choices or feelings, but it's a whole different thing if you're taught that God is threatening to send you to hell or judge you um, because of your choices and feelings. So I'm not sure if it's because of my experiences or my faith, but speaking for God and getting it wrong is probably one of my biggest fears in life. Um, in my writing, I work really hard to be honest about where my experiences have brought me and offer that as something that may resonate with community. But, um, I really work not to be like, God says this. Hmm. Um, (laughs) um, but that really wouldn't work. That approach really wouldn't work very well with purity culture because then who would actually like do it given any alternative, Hmm. um, I think it's also really harmful because it prescribes this recipe for happiness and security that doesn't hold up for everyone. I know so many couples who check the boxes and follow the purity culture rules and have had marriages and often divorces full of heartbreak and loss. So I'm not saying that their relationships went up in flames because they didn't kiss till they got married, but there's so much that purity culture recipe doesn't hold space for. Um, And it definitely lent itself to quick marriages for couples that had like this really strong erotic connection they were ready to delve into and they hadn't necessarily done the other heavy relational lifting necessary for a strong lifelong commitment. Hmm. Um, I don't have kids and maybe this is something you can speak to Nikki, but um, this may be easy for me to say, but if I ever do, I think I'll be a lot more concerned about whether or not my child's potential partner has a good understanding of boundaries and relationships than what they are or aren't doing sexually over age 18. Um, I would want their potential partner to be self-aware and respectful of their needs. I would want to know my child had witnessed them process big feelings like anger and grief in healthy ways. I would want to know they honored the autonomy and agency of my child, that they weren't controlling, that they were able to roll with growth and change. I would care about all of these things vastly more than any sexual status. Um, And these and more are the conversations missing in purity culture. Mm -hmm. So telling teens that all they have to do for a happy and healthy adult life is stay abstinent until marriage is setting them up for at best disillusionment and at worst potentially really dangerous situations, particularly Mm -hmm. for the women who, as we've talked about before, are very much groomed into this role. Mm -hmm. So um, a good example of that in the patriarchy chapter of Dear Sister I wrote something that I think relates really well to this conversation, Um, and it's about how Christian patriarchy and purity culture contribute to women staying in unsafe and even violent relationships. It says, um, some look at victims of abuse and wonder why women don't leave their abusers. In the Christian community, the teachings of many evangelicals on modesty and women's roles prime women and girls for cyclical abuse. We stay because we have been taught to believe it's our fault. We stay because we have never been told others are responsible for how they treat us. We stay because we have never been taught we are allowed to have personal boundaries. 
We stay because saying no or that's not okay with me has never been something practiced, accepted, or modeled. We stay because we were taught to look for a partner who agrees with issues on a static checklist of theologies instead of a partner who respects our ideas, values our input, and cherishes our connection. There are more reasons, of course, but these are the ones I have seen perpetuated in faith circles. So often, we don't arm our women and girls. Instead, we undermine their worthiness by chiding them about their bathing suits and skirt lengths. We are not only made to think parts of ourselves are undesirable or shameful, but unholy. We shear away attributes ruthlessly in an effort to become more Christ-like, throwing back at God's feet gifts God has blessed us with. Sensuality, rest, pleasure, emotion, intuition, connection. We need all these God-given parts of ourselves to be whole. Yeah, I feel so, like so much of what you've shared is my story. Mm. So much of it is why I got married when I was 20, (laughs) you know? Um, And like, I love Steven and to do that with anyone, I'm glad it was him. I can't imagine. Yeah. If, if it weren't him, but it was for so many of the same reasons that you talked about. And then, yeah, just all the things that were taught to me that led to that. So how do you feel Megan about, creating public conversations around church and sexuality without also discussing how church teaches that sexual disassociation you talked about and disembodiment, patriarchy, and misogyny within purity culture. So not good. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Um, And it, I kind of feel like at this point, we're at this, we're at this place where some churches and organizations have kind of realized that they screwed up. And they're just kind of trying to fix their PR without doing the work of actually cleaning up the mess. And I feel like Ooh. it's the same when we talk about like white supremacy, right? It's like, mm-hmm. we're going to have a panel on race and have these, you know, um, ministers of color come talk to us. And then we're not going to talk about it ever again. Mm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's kind of the same, same situation in that it kind of feels like they're trying to use Febreze instead of taking out the trash. and we all know how well that works, I'm mm. assuming. Uh, and again, like they're still missing the conversations that we talked about. Um, and the problem, I think, though, is that those conversations not only can be really hard to have, but they also can shine a light on other places that churches and religious organizations need to grow and make amends. So the reality is that the church, just like in society, um, women advocating for accountability and equality requires an overhaul of how things have been done. So just like if you're going to really work to make reparations for the harm caused to um, marginalized communities by Christianity and Christian churches, you're going to have to do a lot of heavy lifting. Mm. Um, and that's going to require an overhaul of how things, ha- things have been done. But I honestly think that as long as the biggest financial supporters are men and in the other, you know, like in the other realm, like white men, um, we are going to make a very slow progress in having these conversations because that's really what it comes down to is that if the church is going to be challenging their financial base, they're not likely to do it. Right. I have a friend who left a church because their rapist was allowed to stay after addressing it with the church elders. Mm. Um, I have another friend who shared with different church leadership that she was being stalked and the person came to church and was monitored like they watched him, but they let him stay. 
all through a worship service service and he wasn't asked to leave um and then there are multiple women that i know who have been encouraged by pastors to stay with abusive husbands because quote unquote the husband didn't cheat mm. so honestly at this point i look for evidence that churches want to protect and create safe spaces for women but it's really damn hard to find sometimes mm. um and you can't cover all of this up with some febreze and an attempt to have like a hip and relevant conversation about sex and christianity you know like the relevant conversation is dismantling systems of oppression even when they're labeled christian welcome so glad you're joining us yes yeah why do you think that we need to be having more honest and authentic conversations about the church sex and purity culture and why do we need to go beyond discussing just this basic information to really examine the harm caused by puritanical mindsets yeah, so there's a couple reasons. Uh, the first that comes to mind is what Brene Brown always says, which is that shame loses its power when we name it and talk about it openly. Mm. So if we don't examine the roots of purity culture's ideology, it will just keep turning out the same poison in different flavors. Um, and not to be like dire, but it really is an issue of emotional, spiritual, and physical safety, particularly for women. Mm. Uh, and having these conversations is really sounding that, uh, that alarm, that emotional manipulation and abuse in the name of God is unacceptable. Uh, so I share in dear sister that I don't really feel called to proselytize for my faith or like, you know, quote unquote witness, but I do feel really responsible for the safety of the women in my community and for creating and participating in spiritual spaces where they will be able to bring their full selves and be safe. Mm. Uh, my husband says I'm a defender <laughs> and mm. that definitely comes out here. Um, I have these mm. conversations because I really dream about a world where I can assume that most women are safe and well in the way that I can right now assume that most women carry trauma. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I know when I read those notes, <laughs> this part right here in the way that I can now assume most women carry trauma that's powerful to, to be able to flip that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I don't remember where I, where I said this or where I put it, it might've even just been in a journal, but um, I was talking about how, Oh, I think it was in my blog post about um, God cares about Christian, God cares about women and Christians should too. Yes. Um. I said that I sometimes wonder if pastors get up and look out over their congregation and realize the stories that the women carry, mm. because that's one of the first things that has come to mind anytime that I have gotten up in front of a group of women is realizing that one in three has reported their story of mm. assault or harassment um, or has potentially an unsafe living situation. It's just you, when you know too many people, you get up and you look at the, you look at a group and you're like, okay, these stories are here. Yeah. So I feel like because I know off, off, off topic, but I feel like because male pastors, a lot of times don't have that basis of understanding. I don't think that they get up and look at their congregations that way. Uh, I remember listening to a really well-meaning pastor preach about David and Bathsheba and spending 95% of the sermon on David and, you know, Nathan and how David is, you know, um, forgiven by God and not talking about, you know, the rape, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and, or, or the fact that Bathsheba even becomes basically the first um, queen mother 
you know, like her story carries so much and carries so much for the women in the congregation. And we're just going to kind of like gloss right over that because it doesn't apply to the men. But for you, when did things begin to change for you regarding all of this? So I've kind of been on a trajectory out of purity culture since I moved out of my parents' house at 19. Um, And probably even before that, but that was when I was really able to take like more personal control. Uh, A few years after I moved out, I went to therapy. And at that point, I was really just trying to deal with my unmanageable depression and anxiety. Um, And then my therapist, who was also a Christian, um, gently challenged my core beliefs about myself And then I realized how many of those were really tied to this limited and misogynistic idea that I had of God and Mm. who I was, like what was available to me and who I was in faith. And one of the things that really invalidated purity culture for me that um, I feel like also applies to some of the other stuff that we've talked about in like the gender roles is that it's really firmly planted in these very stereotypical gender roles um, that have not only never fit my marriage, but, but it's also like completely assumes that everyone is heterosexual, heterosexual. Yeah. So like, I get that a lot of churches aren't ready to delve into like queer theology or decide whether or not they're going to be affirming, even though I think they should, um, <laughs> in yeah. purity culture, um, like the, the paradigm just completely falls apart when you consider that all men aren't even looking at women and that some women are. Mm, yeah. Oh, if gay men can experience attraction and like, control themselves, then why can't straight men? And then if women who are attracted to other women experience this attraction and also are controlling themselves, like why can't straight men? Mm-hmm. Uh, so then there's, you know, folks of all genders who are demisexual or asexual, and there is no teaching for them in purity culture, which I think is fine because I don't think that would be helpful. But right. realizing all of this r- really kind of discredited the whole thing for me completely because um, whatever folks are feeling on Christianity and queerness, like queer folks have been here right along the whole time. And they're already living outside of these like heteronormative, um, very strict gender role narratives. Yeah. So what has this journey been like for you broadening this narrative you were taught about sex and purity culture within evangelicalism then? So it's been really holistic for me. I know we've kind of talked before about how like some people like to pull one string and follow it when researching or deconstructing an idea or belief. And then some of us want to know everything that that string is connected to and <laughs> yep. we unravel like all of the things at once. Yep. So <laughs> for me, uh, the teachings about sex and purity culture were tied to the teachings about who I was and what I was capable of as a Christian woman. And my sexuality is one aspect of who I am and I've worked to honor and accept all the parts of myself and my identity And that means my sexuality as much as it means the shape of my nose or the fact that I'm 5'2". I have been lucky in many ways on this journey uh, that I have a curious and attentive partner, um, that I didn't deal with the sexual abuse many of my friends have, that I've always had a resistance to being told what to do or not to do, (laughs) particularly with my own body. Um, I was taught this idea of total surrender. I was taught that this was of God, but something about it never felt like the whole story to me. 
So I came to a point where I realized I couldn't worship a God who expected me to be constantly fearful and miserable in their name. Hmm. And I think that broadening the narrative for me has been based in broadening my understanding of God and God's nature. So believing God really wants good things for me and that God cares deeply for me and protects women was essential in my journey. Um, I know it can sound basic, but we're having an in-depth discussion of a system designed to undermine and limit women in the world and church. So it's pretty easy to feel like God is still holding a grudge over Eden. Hmm. Honestly, this this is the topic that has come the closest to making me lose my faith. Because if God really does think women are second-rate servants or created us to be second-rate servants for humanity who deserve oppression, then like, what the hell am I doing worshiping that God? Hmm. Why am I in this religion if I'm only allowed on the sidelines? And I've honestly stayed because I can't get over Jesus and how Jesus treated women. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Yeah, I think that's a huge (laughs) thing for me too. and the almost heretical gender series that I've referenced before. I loved how they dive into the stuff about Eden and Eve. Um, Cause yeah, I mean, I was taught in my early twenties, right. That this curse for Eve in Genesis three was that she would want to usurp power from her husband. And that even though the whole, he will rule over you was included in the curse, that it was somehow not part of the curse, that men thinking they rule over women isn't part of the curse, but it's part of God's good design. But yeah, that gender series, I felt so many emotions because they really redeemed Eve for me Mm. (laughs) because they explained that what happened in the garden is a failure on Adam's part to effectively teach the command given to him by God Um, to tell to Eve rather than a failure on Eve's part to obey God's command. So it was really fascinating to hear all of that taught in a way that I'd never heard before. Yeah. I've heard a few different like interpretations on that whole origin story. And one of them was, and, and again, I'm not saying that I believe this, but you know, it's interesting to hear different, different ideas that come from you know that interpretation was that Eve wasn't actually given that command so it's possible that it was okay for Eve to eat the fruit but it wasn't okay for Adam to eat the fruit you know like you just there's there's a lot of there's a lot of different options but even within that like I don't think that any of them were meant to like damn women for eternity (laughs) right yes no (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I wrote this poem one time and I said something about how, uh, you know, they talk all about how Eve was deceived. So it's like Eve's deception becomes my perpetual perception. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, whew, all that's used to justify mistreatment of women and judging of women and not trusting women. Yep. But yeah, uh, I'm curious if you could talk about what you believe about God and pleasure now versus what you believed about God and pleasure before all of this? Sure. So the Baptist churches that I grew up in were really big on your flesh being terrible and evil Hmm. and um, (laughs) not trustworthy and really despicable to God. And that the only reason that God will even look at you is because of Jesus. Hmm. And then there's also the whole trope that women's desire is what brought sin into the world, as we were kind of discussing. So we have to be constantly supervised and limited. Uh, I was taught not to trust myself, basically, or what I wanted as far back as I can remember. So 
now, I believe that the myriad kinds of pleasure we experience are gifts from God. I, I, I don't know that I would necessarily say I 100% believe this, but I have heard and I like the idea that God actually experiences creation as a form of pleasure and mm. created the world and humanity out of um, out of a good and holy pleasure-seeking experience. Mm. And that's something that I've always really, really liked the idea of. Um, so I have been working personally to retrain my responses to my own desires for all kinds of pleasure as welcome signals instead of red flags to be suppressed. So green lights instead of red lights. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing about that. Um, yeah. Also in your post, you wrote, I talk about how the church teaches sexual disassociation in my book. The path toward integration isn't just additional information about sex, which is important, but also embodiment, also autonomy, also agency. So why are embodiment, autonomy, and agency important? Because embodiment, autonomy, and agency are necessary to having pleasurable and consensual sexual experiences mm. and other kinds of consensual experiences, whether we're talking about relationships or friendships or whatever, but also that embodiment, autonomy, and agency are where much of the harmful teaching lies in purity culture. Uh, you can't detach yourself from your sexuality and be embodied. You can't have a mutually consensual sexual encounter without everyone feeling that they have the full right and ability to be enthusiastic about what they want and don't and what feels good and doesn't. Mm. And this is where agency and autonomy really come in. Um, but handing women autonomy and agency over what we wear, say, look like, think, and do is completely antithetical to purity culture and the roles handed women by church and society. So someone steeped in purity culture can get married and read a whole manual on the mechanics of sex, but if they have sexually disassociated or don't feel comfortable exercising their autonomy and agency, it's not going to be good for anybody. Um, this is why I feel that much of the Christian sex ed misses the mark. Hmm. Yeah. Well, do you believe that your body was created to be your home and safe place first before it's anything to anyone else? I really do. And it's taken me a long time to get here. Hmm. Um, this idea also is very kind of antithetical to purity culture and also just a lot of like general religious culture that's not even about sex. Um, but purity culture teaches that women's bodies are created primarily for literally everyone else, mm. um, men, male pleasure, making babies, but mm. not for, not for the women. Like there's no reason for the clitoris at all, basically. Mm. Um, <laughs> everyone but them. So I don't know. Can you believe I had to work through religious programming telling me I was allowed to prioritize myself like in my own body. Yeah. Um, that I got to make choices about what I wanted in and for my own body. And again, it seems simple, but so revolutionary coming out of purity culture. Um, claiming my body is mine first for my pleasure and wellness has been deeply healing. And this goes for all of our energy as well. Um, many Christian communities teach a very sanctimonious version of codependency that says we must always offer ourselves to others first and be content with what's left. Like, did you ever hear the kid's song, Jesus and Others and You? That's how you spell joy. I hate oh. it. I hate it. Um, so claiming bodily autonomy can be a really big power move. Yeah, that is so good to bring that specific point up there at the end. <laughs> oh, so good. Well, why do you think that sexual education is important? 
so there's a few reasons. Uh, the first is that data shows that abstinence-only sex education doesn't really affect how long teens wait to have sex, but it does have a higher rate in undesired outcomes. Mm. Um, the second I mentioned earlier, and that is that shame is dispersed when we talk about things openly. Hiding and avoiding conversations about sex and sexual education teaches people that sex is shameful. Mm. The third is that sexual education is empowering. The sex talk I got when I was like five is the sperm goes in where the baby comes out. And honestly, like I was asking about something completely different. So I was super <laughs> mystified about why my mom said that. Uh, and I figured it out like 10 years later. I'm like, she thought I was asking about like the talk and I was not. Um, anyways, I didn't figure out what it meant until I was like nine or 10. And when we got farm animals and there's nothing like goats to teach you about the birds and the bees. <laughs> And like birth control of all kinds was seen as going against the will of God. So there was no discussion of condoms or barriers or hormones. And it was something else that I figured out on my own. Sexual health really wasn't addressed either. I found a lump in my breast when I was 20 and I had no insurance. And I went to the gates of hell, also known as Planned Parenthood, to have it evaluated. And years later, I found out that fibroidinoma is run in the family, which mm -hmm. may have saved me some anxiety. Or, you know, if I'd had medical care before my 20, you know, before I was 20, um, I probably would have gotten it evaluated even sooner. Mm. Uh, a friend of mine got married in her 30s, having never had a pelvic exam or personally explored at all, and learned that she had vaginismus, vaginismus, don't know how to say that, on her wedding night. Mm. Um, but it's the, it's the medical condition where you are so tight that you cannot, uh, all of your pelvic muscles have just like completely contracted and are tense and tight, like a, like a, um, like an, almost like a knot. And like, if you get, have like a tense muscle mm. um, and you have to usually do pelvic floor therapy to treat that. And again, something that would have been found if she had regular medical care before she was 30 something so yeah. sexual health is health just like mental health is health you know mm. knowledge is power not educating women and girls about sexual health sex birth control and bodies is just another form of control so this is not just within christianity but across the board yeah well will what we've talked about today be the basis or included in the next book that you're not writing <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, while we wait for the book you aren't writing, um, <laughs> what resources do you recommend for anyone interested in examining more about this narrow narrative that we've talked about within evangelicalism about sex? Yeah, so if it's people kind of looking for more information from the outside, or if you are kind of trying to like break stuff down yourself, I would say Pure by Linda K. Klein is excellent hmm. and really like... It has a lot of interviews from people of all different backgrounds that dealt with purity culture. Um, and then Shameless by Nadja Bowles-Weber, also very good. Um, there's also a few Instagram accounts that are good, I think, for people who are kind of coming from the other side of it. If you're trying to come out of purity culture and really like establish a more healthy sexual ethic, um, there's a sex educator. Her name is Erica Smith. She goes with Erica Smith Educate. That educates is her handle. Um, there's also sex positive families, and Miss um, Tara Tang talks a lot about embodiment and um, coming out of purity culture as well. Mm. So, 
Um, Erica, Erica Smith also talks a lot about like queer sexuality. So if that's something that like purity culture doesn't even remotely touch on. So mm -hmm. if that's something that you're, you know, looking into or feeling like you need education on, she's a great resource. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those. Um, and I think I mentioned this book to you too, uh, Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Is that how you say yes, last name? I read part of that and it's really good too. Yeah, that one was really good. So thank you for your recommendations. Now I have more things to read. Um, <laughs> well, do you have anything that you're working on that we can be looking out for in the future? <laughs> you really want me to write that book, don't you? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a possibility of working on another book, but um, it's going to be slow because I really allowed the dear sister to take over my life when I was writing it. Mm. And I think it was the right decision for me at the time, but uh, I, I am trying to kind of find some semblance of balance in my life and not, mm. not repeat that experience fully. So yeah. um, there's that. Um, I also do uh, in-person workshops that are called embodied sisterhood photo workshops and where we really bring a group of women together and evaluate our relationships with our images mm. in our pictures in um, whether we're, we're talking about online or just photos that are taken of us because that can be a really big trigger for a lot of women. And obviously this is like dependent on the pandemic clearing up but this summer I'd like to be launching that again and do some more of those workshops. I'm also a photographer, so we do a group photo shoot and also do some personal reflection and exercises to really claim our space in photos. And just Instagram and if you sign up for my email list or my Instagram, that'd be cool. Follow me. <laughs> yes. Well, one, I remember you telling me through a text about the photos and yeah. working on the image. And I just love that idea so much. Well, can you tell people your handle for where they can find you online for yes. Instagram and then your website? Yes. So my website is meganwooding.com and I'm the simple Megan, M-E-G-A-N, W-O-O-D-I-N-G.com. And then my Instagram is at M Wooding and I believe my Facebook is Megan E Wooding. Awesome. Well, last question to wrap up here. What is your hope for yourself and the church as you broaden the narrative around the church and sex? I mean, I really hope that we can learn to show folks that their full selves are deeply welcomed and accepted as thoroughly as we've shown them that they are not in the past. Mm. Um, I'd love to see the intersection of Christianity and sexuality focus on what's equitable, healing, and whole with the understanding that good theology will always lead to good fruit in our lives. Mm. So to really understand that if, if a theology or ideology is continuously giving us bad results, that we should like reevaluate it. Yeah. Um, and then I think engaging in Christian community while prioritizing wellness, boundaries, autonomy, and personal agency in general, without even talking about sexuality, would be revolutionary. Mm -hmm. uh, but really, I hope someday the church can be a place where women can feel safe being their full selves and also actually be safe emotionally, physically, and mentally. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I hope all of those things too. And Megan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about the church and sex, as well as for your honesty and vulnerability here. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you so much for having me.
Wasn't that an incredible conversation with Megan? I am so grateful that she said yes to being a guest this season. I also wanted to share part of a comment from Matthew Powell that I didn't see until I was looking at Stephen's CastBox app. Matthew wrote, Nikki, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you on putting together an excellent and informative podcast. I appreciate the insight into how women in the church have generally been made to feel. As an atheist who grew up in the church, it's interesting to see how we have come to the same conclusion regarding certain traditional church views and practices, albeit from different starting points. Thank you for everything that you do. I know this is a difficult task you've undertaken, but you are really kicking ass at it. So thank you, Matthew, for your encouragement and for leaving this comment. As a reminder, the music from today's episode was Confessions by B&D, and the full song will close out the episode. You can stream, purchase, and download Bandy's music at bandy17.bandcamp.com. If you like what you heard today, share it with a friend. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. In addition, make sure to subscribe, then rate and review to help others find the show. I also want to thank Jordan Lukens for his help with editing and Daniel Bolin for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for podcast episodes as they become available by visiting broadeningthenarrative.blogspot.com. You can find Broadening the Narrative on Instagram at Broadening the Narrative, on Twitter at Broad Narrative, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Broadening the Narrative. Come back next week for a powerful conversation with historian Letty Shoemate on the topic, if your church isn't denouncing and repenting of white supremacy, you don't want to miss it. Grace and peace, friends. Remember, visualizing her body, age 11, something got me sweating, watching on the telly in her belly, it was so electric, something in my belly, trying to tell me of a subtle difference, was kinda scary, so I buried it and didn't listen, put up a barrier, hysteria was in my vision, what to do and do to who was worrying my preposition, exposition of a myriad of expeditions, these were my burdens, homie, clearly I can never lift them, and I was certain it was period if I could fix them, straight marriage and maybe a baby carriage, embracing all the maybes to save me and my appearance, whoa, thought a struck gold and when i grab hold behold it was something deep in my soul at the pinnacle of twin she was identical but i never let her in it was too difficult now it's hard to let her go time to give her hope god invited me so far all i see are my wants i want it all to change just know i'm fighting below the line But what I do with attractions I got Yeshua to back me And I am through with the acting Reaction is to the traction What's happening is compassion I'm automatically fashioning I'm emphatically passionate Family matters in question Got me relearning the lesson And me discerning the blessing Of unity in our difference Unity and resemblance You and me as a brother Or you and me as a sister What I know is the system Of scrutiny and resistance Got people in our community Muted it in confliction Our duty becomes descriptions To fluently live the scriptures Congruently in a picture Of you and me on the mission So let us tenderly listen and let us in when we visit I promise you we embrace all the promises He elicits if truth and grace is division We gotta make a decision in this vocation predicament I'ma make a man, let me get your hand God unbind me so far All I see are my wants I want it all to change Just know I'm fighting below the lining Behold, regardless if I change 